0: Hard to believe, but June is just about in the rearview mirror for 2023. So with the fading June disappearing by the minute, let's not waste time and jump right into our far middle episode 110 sports dedication. Every once in a while, I find a sports history tidbit that might not be the most profound, but it is irresistibly fascinating, at least to me. And I hope you find it as well to be fascinating. Now, we've got such an instance, I think, for our 110 dedication. It goes back to June 28th, the day this episode is first issued, the year 1957, and it deals with the boys of summer Major League Baseball, and more specifically, the dedication deals with the boys of summer who are going to play in the All-Star Game that year. Or actually, which boys of summer were not going to play, but for some intervention from the top of the league. So let me explain. Understand at the start of this explanation that the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, it used to be one of my favorite sporting events all year when I was a kid, growing up a baseball fan in the late 70s and early 80s. Just something special about that game in the middle of the year, at least back then. I honestly couldn't tell you the last time I watched even an inning of the Major League Baseball All-Star Game in recent years. And I do believe to this day that one of the greatest public services baseball ever provided Americans was using the All-Star balloting and fan voting procedures to introduce young Americans to the concept of voting. So if you're old enough, you remember those ballot cards for the All-Star Game that you would fill out and turn in at the stadium when you were going to a game, each position naming three or four candidates to choose from, and then seeing a little imperfect democracy, I'd call it, in action, and how the All-Star teams were ultimately built and constructed. And remember, when we used to have elections in government without drama and without contestations and without controversy— well, I'm not sure if this makes you feel better or not, but the baseball voting process had crises of confidence well before recent presidential election flare-ups. In 1957, the All-Star Game was to be played in St. Louis, and the National League featured some perennial stars, like Stan the Man Musial in St. Louis, of course, Willie Say Hey Mays in New York and soon to be in San Francisco, and of course, Hamran, Hank Aaron in Milwaukee. And everyone wanted and expected to see these greats suit up for the National League at the All-Star Game. Except there was some serious election and ballot meddling from fans in the Queen City that year. You see, Reds fans, they stuffed the ballot box all early summer, and they ended up electing eight Reds as All-Star starters. So the Reds starters had more votes than usual, Aaron and Mays, along with a host of others. So what to do? You let the Democratic process play out, with the Reds' team starting the game and ignore the manipulation? Or do you intervene and come out with a more reasonable and desired outcome, but you risk the integrity of the voting process? Well, legendary Commissioner Ford Frick, he had the luxury of not having the Constitution and Supreme Court looking over his shoulder on the matter, and he could do what was expedient for the betterment of the league and, frankly, what was better for revenue. So he overruled the ballot process of the fans, and he named Stan Usual and Willie Mays and Hank Aaron to the National League team. In some accounts, by the way, I should point out, had Musial not needing the help from Frick and getting into the starting lineup on his own, just barely. Now, by the way, Frick made that decision after performing an investigation. And that investigation found that the majority of the ballots cast had indeed come from Cincinnati. In fact, the Cincinnati Times-Star newspaper had printed up pre-marked ballots with the Cincinnati starting lineup on them, and distribute them with each day's paper to make it easy for Reds fans to vote over and over for the team's players. And get this, Burger Beer, that was a local brew that was a Reds sponsor. The beer company pre-printed 250,000 ballots and distributed them to local bars around Cincinnati. And legend has it that bartenders at those establishments would refuse to serve customers until they filled out a ballot the way the bartender and the Reds liked the ballot to be filled out. Now, Frick also instituted voting reform after the 1957 incident to prevent similar issues in future years. Managers, players, and coaches picked the teams from 1958 on until fan voting rights were restored in 1970. And to avoid a repeat of the 1957 incident in 1970 and later, Major League Baseball officials evenly distributed millions, tens of millions of ballots to tens of thousands of retail outlets and minor and major league stadiums, while a special panel was also created to review the voting. That's what I and many of you baseball fans grew up with and that I mentioned earlier. And you thought federal election laws were complex. You didn't realize that baseball instituted its own version of an electoral college to its all-star voting process, did you? See, this nation dealt with hanging chads, and mail-in ballot concerns and voting machine-type controversies decades prior to what we remember. Episode 110 goes to the National League All-Star Team selection process back in 1957. On this day, June 28th, when Ford Frick intervened to deny Cincinnati Reds fans the fruits of their political machinery, and instead decided to make sure the errands and mutuals and Mays of the league were featured front and center at that year's Midsummer Classic or All-Star Game and to change the way baseball's gears of Democratic voting were going to be adjusted forever. Yeah, newspapers in Cincinnati being biased and trying to skew reality back in the 1950s with baseball. Let's connect to journalists in technical fields who display some shocking bias of their own in current times with much bigger stakes at hand than a baseball lineup. For this connection, I have to bring out a retirement, a far-middle feature that I thought was relegated to the archives for good, which was the Fauci focus. So just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, for all you Jaws fans. Actually, I'm not going to use this connection to so much critique Dr. Fauci himself as much as I would like to cast light on how Dr. Fauci is a lightning rod to assenuate how biased the supposedly objective journalism profession has become and how compromised the scientific community is today. Now, there were a series of emails during pandemic and the government-mandated shutdowns of societies between the editor-in-chief of the family of scientific journals known as Science and Dr. Fauci. Now, this is Science, a Scientific Journal Suite, not the New York Times. So most people would think the journalists and editors at Science, they're clinically objective, and they're nonpartisan, and they're apolitical. And that might be a reasonable set of assumptions based on prior times, but it's an extremely inaccurate set of assumptions in today's world, whether it be for the editor-in-chief at Science or the way content gets reviewed for publication in Science. Which brings me to the emails over the pandemic period that I'm referencing. The editor referred to the Fauci family in an email to the doctor as the first family of science. That's what I call some serious brown nosing. And the editor had another email offering Fauci the opportunity to write an op-ed about, using his words, whatever you want. And there are many more emails from the editor which are along the same line of basically unabashed adulation and adoration. And it's clear the editor-in-chief of science is in awe of Dr. Fauci, which basically creates two problems no matter what your views are of Dr. Fauci. First, as I hinted at a minute ago, The emails present horrible optics at a minimum and some serious ethical concerns on the other end of the spectrum. The editor of a science journal is supposed to be clinical and objective and rational and apolitical. Let the data speak type of an approach, right? Yet this guy, he comes across as none of those and more like a fawning fan of a movie star or a rock star. Not making this up, but it turns out that the editor of the science suite of journals has a Fauci bobblehead doll. OMG. And there's a second problem as well. And if this is how the editor of the journal is acting, and this is how he really feels with clear bias, then how does it pollute the peer review process and publication process of, you know, science? You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to be concerned that the scientific method of peer review and publication that the journals overseen by this editor-in-chief have morphed into the science. More political science, I guess, than actual science. And as an engineer, that's very bothersome and very concerning. And worst of all, it's not atypical in today's STEM fields, as the left has subsumed more and more of the process and approach to the field formerly known as science. Now, the editor-in-chief is unapologetic now that these emails have come to light. So check out his response when asked about whether the emails show a troubling behavior. These are his words. It is entirely appropriate for the EIC, I'm assuming that's editor-in-chief, of science to have collegial relationships with our authors. Hmm, collegial. The emails seem to indicate something that goes way, way beyond collegial, more like obsession or worship. Now, when science gets transformed into the science, it goes, of course, from a valuable source of sober analysis when setting policy to a blatant cheerleader for uninformed policy and political leanings. And I'm sure that many scientific and economics journals and professionals out there today, they offer full support for the entire suite of climate change policies and regulations and energy transition central planning, which brings us to our next connection, which is what the EPA is up to when it comes to its newest attempt to wreck the U.S. grid and economy. Now, I can tell you ahead of time what the EPA is intending is insanity from a technical and scientific and engineering suite of perspectives in other words, it's not going to happen because it can't happen. But anyway, despite that reality, the EPA is wanting to mandate that all coal and natural gas fired power plants do one of two things. Either they capture and store carbon dioxide, which is known as carbon capture and sequestration or CCS, by 2035, or option 2 is to essentially shut down. Now what this effectively means is that many of these plants are going to simply be forced to shut down and retire because equipping them with CCS capability it's not going to be close to being economic. So, less supply or capacity of affordable and reliable power on the grid, that isn't good for anybody unless you're solving for manufacturing energy scarcity. Now, while that is going on, the EPA is also mandating an electrification of the transportation sector through EV mandates and mileage standards that are impossible to meet by current technology for internal combustion engines. That's going to increase the demand for electricity on the grid. Now, I'm not an economist, although I did take a micro class and I also took a macroeconomics class in school. But remind me again, what happens under economic theory when demand skyrockets and supply plummets? Is that a classic case of scarcity and hyperinflating costs for power, which is the lifeblood of the entire economy? Which is exactly, of course, the intention when it comes to these regulations. You jack up the cost of energy, you reduce the availability of it, and you force individual choice to go where government and the bureaucrat desire it to go. And by the way, the EPA, who is proposing these new power plant rules and plays a major role in the mandating of EVs via regulation along with other federal agencies, it doesn't even have expertise in electricity grids. That expertise would sit with FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee within the federal government. So what does FERC think of all these power plant rules and electrification of transportation mandates? Well, all four FERC commissioners, and those are D's and R's, mind you, they told the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee that you can't have a reliable grid for the foreseeable future without coal and natural gas plants playing a major role in a portfolio mix. Now, who do you got in this difference of opinion? The bipartisan grid experts at FERC? or the code redders whose religion aims to create energy scarcity at EPA. And don't take your host's word for what this means to the U.S. grid and to you and your job and your business or your lifestyle. And don't just take the FERC commissioner's words for it. Listen to our next connection, which is a warning from the North America Electric Reliability Corp, or NERC. It is identified, using their words now, capacity shortfalls that may result, using their words again, and high risk of energy emergencies during peak summer conditions. Where? 15 states in our midsection that serve 45 million customers. Same situation in California, by the way, and not shockingly, due to what NERC called the state's overall variability in both the resource mix and demand profile. I can tell you that's expert code for too much unreliable and intermittent wind and solar in the grid mix and not enough reliable and affordable nuclear, natural gas, and coal what normal people call rolling blackout country. Oh, and NERC had this to say about the Northeast United States. Limited natural gas infrastructure, that's their term, is creating reliability problems up there for winter, and that's also another fancy way of saying something straightforward, which is saying natural gas pipeline construction bans and new natural gas hookup bans, they're going to take their toll and wreck the New England grid network and energy security. It's what normal people call a cold and dark forecast during upcoming New England winters. Now, with all this hyper-focus on climate change, some tangible and real epidemics and crises, they continue unabated in America. Let's connect to the unprecedented drug epidemic in our nation. Last year, over 100,000 of our neighbors died from drug overdose. It's 100,000 in a single year. That's a Green Bay, Wisconsin gone every year, or losing half a Salt Lake City, every year, or one-third of Pittsburgh every year. It's five times more than the number of combat deaths that Russia suffered in Ukraine from December of last year till May of this year. And those are the last statistics I could get my hands on via the web. And most of those 100,000 dead Americans last year, and frankly, the tens of thousands since killed in 2023, they're from fentanyl, which has a supply chain controlled by China. China has gone about a methodical poisoning of our people, it's no different than if a terrorist placed toxins in one of our drinking water reservoirs. Now, what do our leaders do in response to this undeclared but all too real war from a foreign adversary? Our leaders in D.C., they talk tough and they hold conferences and confabs. But what they won't do is act in response to protect the American people and our safety. That's because the elite and the expert class, including people like the climate czar, are lifelong China apologists. Their approach has failed miserably, and they just avoid or double down to avoid the obvious scrutiny. And worse yet, these same elite and experts, they set policy in other arenas to favor China and create new dependencies on top of our drug dependency on the CCP. Case in point and front and center are being energy policy forcing the buying of wind and solar and electric vehicles and batteries with supply chains that are effectively controlled by the CCP. Think about the insanity of how our elite set policy. So I'll walk you through some steps. Step one, use the cover of Code Red to attack and shut down domestic energy and manufacturing. You retire coal plants, you vilify nukes, you ban natural gas pipelines, no gas hookups, you outlaw internal combustion engine cars, and on and on. Step two, you watch the losses of jobs in domestic energy and manufacturing mount as collateral damage to the policy attacks And by the way, these are jobs that pay family-sustaining wages, which then puts and pushes the middle class and flyover country out of existence, and it shoves them into desperate corners. Now, step three, in place of domestic energy and manufacturing, the experts and elites, they mandate the unreliable and the intermittent and the inconvenient. And that's wind and solar and electric vehicles, all of which must be sourced directly and indirectly from China and that wires an energy and transportation dependency on China. Step four, all those good people out of work and desperate, workers in domestic energy and manufacturing, guess what? They get depressed and some turn to addiction. China's supply of fentanyl offers a quick and readily available and tempting out from the pain. Heck, the bureaucrat will even legalize other drugs that are less harmful so long as it numbs the minds of the citizens and makes them more dependent on the state. Addiction and the damage done, it grows, they grow to levels unseen. That's the 100,000 deaths from drug overdose last year alone. Step five, our leaders start to get exposed on their flawed energy policies when it becomes clear that China's sending more wind and solar here than ever and making them using highly questionable methods that involve human rights abuses. So our elite imposed tariffs on Chinese imports for things like solar But everyone, including China, realizes there is no intention to actually enforce the tariffs. Step six, watch the elite in D.C. who set policy continue to talk tough about opioids and cracking down on China. Same tough talk on China evading solar or battery tariffs. But it's only talk because our current leaders allow China to keep pumping their poison into our people and to keep skirting tariffs through other Asian nations with its wind and solar and battery industries. And then step seven. China knows full well that we are all talk, no action. They keep poisoning by drug. Annual body counts of 100,000 are tallied. The CCP keeps using kids in Africa and genocide within China to pump out more panels and turbines we pay good money for. And they do so knowing we will not do anything to stop them. The U.S. grid goes from first rate to third world, which destroys massive value in our economy and introduces outsized risk. This is where we are in the summer of 2023, and it's going to get worse until we decide to reverse course. It's plain as day, 100,000 drug overdose deaths per year. Let it set in, constant listeners. Let it set in. Now, when I walked you through those seven steps of policy insanity, I told you step two was watching the losses of jobs in domestic energy and manufacturing pile up as collateral damage to the policy attacks on those industries. And again, those are jobs paying family sustaining wages, and that puts and pushes that middle class and people in flyover country basically out of existence or into desperate corners. And that's where the threats like addiction start to take their toll. And if you think this isn't happening on a grand scale across this land of ours, let me illuminate to you some very disturbing data as our next connection. Now, the U.S. Career Institute did a study that delved into and assessed Bureau of Labor Statistics data to figure out which industries will grow the most over the course of the next decade and which industries will be declining at a rapid pace. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, industries in the leisure and hospitality sector and the healthcare and social assistance sector are projected to have the biggest increase in employment in the United States between 2021 and 2031, that decade. The social services part of the healthcare segment will likely see massive demand growth for its services due to the opioid epidemic that we just discussed, at least for the lucky victims who aren't killed by overdose and can get help. Now, as to the leisure and hospitality industry being the biggest growth sector of our economy, we should have two concerns. First, it's tough to earn family-sustaining wages in many of those jobs. Second, places like Pittsburgh or Detroit, they aren't going to become a tourist mecca anytime soon. So that sector's growth, of course, is going to be very fragmented and concentrated in the obvious tourist areas of the nation. So there's some bad news within the good news, so to speak, of the hot growth industries. But there is some truly dire news in the bad news of the fastest declining industries for the next decade. The data also showed that manufacturing industries are projected to have the largest decreases in employment numbers during this time. Those are the jobs paying those family sustaining wages and that fuel the middle class and the rest of the economy, including the leisure and hospitality sector, by the way. And these are the jobs who are threatened first and foremost, not by AI, not by globalization, but with our own policies in energy and climate. And by the way, this isn't a small decline in manufacturing and energy. The data suggests a 50 percent decline this coming decade. We're legislating and regulating the manufacturing and energy industries out of existence to the detriment of more stakeholders than most realize over the coming years. The prior connections that we've been discussing, despite them being varied, they do share a common trait, and that is the failure of the expert class and the exposure of the ineptitude of the elite class, their policies doing more societal and economic damage than good. And all three of those things came to light in a recent spate of congressional testimony in the banking sector, which can serve as the next-up connection. Now, the subject was Silicon Valley Bank and its demise, which we discussed on prior episodes. In the ex-CEO, the bank testified in front of the Senate Banking Committee in May, and I found it to be a very interesting exchange. So just allow me a minute to walk you through a quick summary of it. And first, at the start, you had the usual posturing from the senators on the committee – and that was from both Democrats like Sherrod Brown and Republicans like Tim Scott. So they slammed the ex-CEO of SVB for not understanding banking 101 risk and for not seeing interest rate hikes by the Fed as posing a risk. And it was the usual soundbite stuff that senators love and live for. But what got truly interesting was what the response was from the ex-CEO, the failed bank, in response to those questions, or maybe instead of questions, it's more apt to call them critiques. Now, the CEO, the ex-CEO, implied during his prepared remarks and during his answers that SVB failed on managing the interest rate risk because the Fed itself, the Federal Reserve, stated to the banks and to the world that they didn't need to worry about interest rate risks. Remember the Fed chair, Mr. Powell, saying inflation was only transitory. And remember him saying that low rates would extend on and on when the Fed provided its forward guidance. Look, it comes down to a bit of a circular loop here. The Fed messages what it will try to do and what it sees into the future. And for years, that message or guidance was ultra-low rates and no inflation risk other than the infamous transitory mumbo-jumbo talk. Then the market, including the banks, they follow that view of the Fed, assuming the Fed has credibility. And the market sets a rate environment and yield curve that mirror the Fed belief. The Fed influences the market, and then the market reinforces the Fed view when things work. Now, what makes this work? The credibility of the Fed. If the Fed has credibility, the circular loop works wonderfully. But if and when the central bank loses its credibility, watch out. Danger. And I am starting to think the Fed and other global central banks, they're starting to lose at least some of their mystical credibility. The market's starting to think twice about what Mr. Powell says or what the ECB issues. And the market might be wise to do so because, as recent events have proven… When SVB followed along with the Fed guidance and didn't worry about interest rate risk, it opens itself and its depositors and its shareholders and all taxpayers up to a world of hurt. Banks would be warned to think for themselves when it comes to differentiating between what the Fed lectures and what the market might actually do. And by the way, while the Fed was saying through its forward guidance not to worry about interest rate risk, it was telling everyone, including the banks, to worry greatly about climate change risk. What a joke, but the laugh track on that front continues throughout government as we just discussed. Let's conclude our weekly visit by going back to the first day we published this episode, June 28th, and connect to how good things happen when government facilitates innovation instead of stifling it. Back, way back in 1846, on this day, a Belgian by the name of Adolf Sachs was granted a patent for his invention. It was for a creation, it was a single reed woodwind instrument with a conical body made of brass. Sound is produced when a reed on a mouthpiece vibrates to produce a sound wave inside the instrument's body. And then the pitch is controlled by opening and closing holes in the body to change the effective length of the tube. The holes are closed by leather pads attached to keys operated by the player. The instrument ended up being named after its inventor, Mr. Sax. Yes, the saxophone was granted a patent on this day back then, and it's played a prominent role in the history of jazz, really since jazz was in its early stages of creation and evolution. And there are so many sax greats throughout the years in the history of jazz. Most experts say Charlie Parker was the greatest ever, and they're probably right. Who can argue with that? My favorite three sax players of all time, though, they don't include Charlie Parker. I'd go with Sonny Rollins as one of the three who I believe is still alive and has to be in his 90s by now. And in his younger days, he did time in jail for armed robbery, and he has some horrible battles with drugs and heroin before he righted himself and then went off and made jazz history. Um, Rollins had, by the way, that flawed worry, like so many musicians, that his getting off of drugs would hurt his musical creativity. That's nonsense. That's crazy. But anyway, what draws me to Rollins is that he's got a very distinctive sound, very aggressive and rollicking You don't need to be a jazz expert to pick out when he's playing on a record. Now, my second favorite of the top three sax players in jazz history is Stan Getz, California cool jazz innovator from the 50s and 60s. Um, His work was very smooth, and if you're ever looking for a desired mood that you would call calm, put on some Stan Getz. In many ways, Getz and Rollins are almost polar opposites with their styles, which is probably why I like both so much. Now, my third favorite sax player is my all-time favorite. Everybody knows him, John Coltrane. He did great and historic work with Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk. In many ways, Coltrane's classic work, A Love Supreme, can be viewed as the ultimate in jazz composition. And here's a strange fact about Coltrane. So he died young, unfortunately, at age 40, I believe, in the late 1960s. And after his death, a congregation called the Yardbird Temple in San Francisco began worshipping him as God incarnate, and the congregation became affiliated with the African Orthodox Church, which involved changing Coltrane's status from that of a god or god to a saint. Okay, I'm not going to worship Coltrane, and I'm certain he was no saint, but he was the greatest at what he did, at least in the opinion of this humble host. Now, the same host that thoroughly enjoyed our virtual visit this week and who will be looking forward to spending some time with you again in seven days.